Chapter 9. William Grimshaw, The Writings and Witness In order to form a correct estimate of a great man's character, there are two sources of information to which we should always turn, if possible, in addition to the events of his life. The literary remains he leaves behind him form one of these sources. The stories handed down about him by contemporaries form another. From both of these sources I will try to supply the reader and listener of these pages with some further information about William Grimshaw. The literary remains of a man like Grimshaw are necessarily few and sparse. It could hardly be otherwise. A clergyman who is constantly preaching twenty or thirty times a week, and who is carrying on a system of aggressive evangelism all over Yorkshire, Lancashire, and Cheshire, was not likely to have much time for writing. In fact, his Reply to White, already referred to, is the only formal publication that he ever put forth. He says himself in the reply, I have as little leisure for writing as for anything I do. There are, however, a few valuable remnants of his thoughts still around, which are useful as indicating his turn of mind, and will probably be thought interesting by all Christian readers and listeners. His covenant with God, given at length by Hardy, is a very fascinating and interesting document, though too long for the pages of a book like this. The following disconnected excerpts will give some idea of it. Eternal and unchangeable Jehovah, great Creator of heaven and earth, and adorable Lord of angels and men, I desire with the deepest humiliation and abasement of soul to fall down at this time in your solemn presence and earnestly pray that you will penetrate my heart with a proper sense of your unutterable and inconceivable glories. I know that through Jesus, the Son of your love, you condescend to visit sinful mortals and to allow their approach to you and this covenant fellowship with you. I know that the design and plan are entirely your own, and that you have graciously sent to offer it to me as no one untaught by you could have been able to join it, or would be inclined to embrace it, even when actually offered. To you, therefore, do I now come, invited by your love and trusting his righteousness alone, laying myself at your feet with shame and confusion of face, and smiting on my breast, saying with the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I acknowledge, O Lord, that I have been a great transgressor. My sins have reached unto heaven, and my iniquities have been lifted up unto the skies. My shameful corruptions and lusts have brought forth fruit unto death in numberless ways. And if you were absolute in marking down all that I have done, I could never endure it. But you have graciously called me to return unto you, although I am a prodigal son and a backsliding child. Behold, therefore, I solemnly come before you. O my Lord, I am convinced of my sin and foolishness. You know, O Lord, I solemnly covenanted with you in the year 1738. Now, once more and forever, I most solemnly give up, devote, and surrender all that I am, spirit, soul, and body, to you and to your will and commands in Christ Jesus, my Saviour, this fourth day of December, 1752. I am aware of my sinfulness and unworthiness, yet I am also aware that I am your pardoned, justified, and regenerated child in the spirit and blood of my dear and precious Saviour, Jesus Christ, 
by clear experience. Glory be to you, O my triune God. I desire and resolve to be wholly and forever yours. Blessed God, I most solemnly surrender myself unto you. Hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth. I affirm this day that the Lord is my God, Father, Saviour, and portion forever. I am one of His covenant children forever. Record, O eternal Lord, in your book of remembrance, that from this moment on I am yours forever. From this day I solemnly renounce all former lords, the world, the flesh, and the devil, in your name. No more, directly or indirectly, will I obey them. This day I give up myself to you, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you, which I know is my reasonable service. To you I consecrate all my worldly possessions. In your service I desire and determine to spend all my time desiring you to teach me to spend every moment of it to your glory and the setting forth of your praise. In every situation and relation of life I am now or may hereafter be in. I do not only consecrate all I have to your service, but I also most humbly surrender and submit all that I am to your holy and sovereign will. I leave, O Lord, to your management and direction all I possess and all I wish. I set my every enjoyment and interest before you to be disposed of as you please. Continue or remove what you have given me, and bestow or refuse what I imagine I want as you see best. And though I dare not say that I will never complain, yet I hope I may say that I will work not only to submit, but to cheerfully comply to your sovereign providence, not only to bear your heaviest afflictions on me, but to consent to them and praise you for them contentedly settling in whatever you have for me, my will into yours. I consider myself as nothing, and you, O God, as the great eternal All, whose word will determine and whose power will order all things in the world. Order the details of my life, O God, in a way that will be wholly subservient to your glory and my own true happiness. And when I have done your will and completed your will upon earth, Call me home at whatever time and in whatever way you please. Only grant that in my dying moments and the near approach of eternity I may remember my pledge to you and may spend my last breath in your service. When you see me in the agonies of death, remember this covenant too, even though I may be incapable of recollecting it. Look down upon me, O Lord, your languishing, dying child. Place your everlasting arms underneath my head. Put strength and confidence into my departing spirit and receive it to the embrace of your everlasting love. And when I am thus numbered with the dead and all the activities of this life are over with me forever, if this solemn memorial should fall into the hands of any surviving friends or relatives, may it be the means of making a serious impression on their minds, and may they read it not only as my language, but as their own, and learn to fear the Lord my God, and with me to put their trust under the shadow of His wings for time and for eternity. I solemnly endorse this dedication of myself to the ever-blessed triune God, in the presence of angels and all invisible spectators, this fourth day of December, 1752. William Grimshaw The next document, from which I will provide some excerpts, 
is a creed or summary of beliefs that William Grimshaw sent to William Romaine in December 1762, only four months before his death. It is to be found at length in Biographia Evangelica, or an historical account of the lives and deaths of the most eminent and evangelical authors or preachers, by Erasmus Middleton. This creed is a regular, systematic statement of Grimshaw's religious views, drawn out into twenty-six points, and is of course far too long to be inserted here. A few paragraphs are all that I can give you. They prove, though, that however much Grimshaw may have agreed with Wesley on many points, he certainly was not an Armenian. 22. I believe it is by the Spirit we are enabled, not to eradicate, as some affirm, for that is absurd, but to subjugate the old man, to suppress, not destroy, the excessiveness of our fleshly appetites, to resist and overcome the world and the devil, and to grow in grace gradually, not suddenly, unto the perfect and eternal day. This is all I acknowledge or know to be Christian perfection or sanctification. 23. I believe that all true believers will be daily tempted by the flesh, as well as by the world and the devil, even to their lives' end, and that they will feel a tendency, more or less, to comply, yes, and do comply therewith. The best believer, then, if he knows what he says, and says the truth, is only a sinner at best. 24. I believe that their minds are constantly subject to a thousand ungracious, unprofitable thoughts, even amid their reading, meditation, and prayers, that all their religious exercises are deficient, that all their graces, however noteworthy, are imperfect, that God sees iniquity in all their holy things, and even if it would be granted that they love God with all their hearts, yet they must continually pray with the psalmist, Enter not into judgment with thy servant. Psalm 143, 2. 25. I believe that Jesus is a complete as well as a free Savior, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He alone is not only the believer's wisdom and righteousness, but is also his sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. And that in him is a fountain always open for sin and impurity unto the last breath of his life. This is my daily necessary privilege, my relief, and my comfort. 26. I believe, lastly, that God is faithful and unchangeable, that all his promises are yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20. That he never, never will leave me, that he will never, never, never forsake me. Hebrews 13.5. But that I, and all who believe, love, and fear Him, will receive the objective of our faith, the salvation of our souls. This is the sum and substance of my creed. It is at least what I presume to call my form of sound words. In it I can truly say that I have no regard to men or books, ancient or modern, but to the Holy Scriptures, reason, and experience. According to this present creed I have, and I hope, after this, to continue in all my preaching, to cast down man and exalt my dear Lord in all that he does.
The last example that I will give of Grimshaw's writings is a letter addressed by him to certain Christians in London. It's dated January 9, 1760, and can be found in Hardy's biography of Grimshaw. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus. It is well with some types of people that you have had or now are dealing with. It is well with those of you in Christ who have gone to God. It is well with those of you in Christ who have not gone to God. It is well with those of you who earnestly desire to be in Christ that they may go to God. It is well for those still alive who neither desire to be in Christ nor go to God. It is only bad with such who, being out of Christ, are gone to the devil. Them it is best to leave alone and to say no more about them. It is well with those of you who, being in Christ, have gone to God. You, ministers and members of Christ, have no more doubt or pain about them. They are now and forever out of the reach of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are gone where the wicked cease from troubling them, and where the weary are at rest. They are sweetly resting in Abraham's bosom. They dwell in his presence who has redeemed them, where there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. They are waiting the joyful morning of the resurrection when their corrupt bodies will be made like unto His glorious body, will be reunited to the soul, will receive the joyful sentence, and will inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. It is well also with those of you who are in Christ, though you have not yet gone to God. You live next door to them. Heaven has begun with you, too. The kingdom of God is within you. You feel it. This is a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It is begun in grace and will end in glory. Yes, it is Christ within you, the hope of glory. Christ the rock, the foundation laid in your hearts, hope in the middle, and glory at the top. Christ, hope, glory. Christ, hope, glory. You are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You are justified, sanctified, and will soon be glorified. Yes, your lives are already hidden with Christ in God. You have your conversation already in heaven. Already you sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What heavenly sentences these are! What can come nearer to paradise? Bless the Lord, O you happy souls, and let all that is within you bless His holy name. Sing unto the Lord as long as you live, and praise your God while you have your being. And how long that will be through the endless ages of a glorious eternity. It is well with all those of you who truly desire to be in Christ so that you may go to God. Certainly He owns you. Your desires are from Him. You will enjoy His favor. In time you will have peace with Him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Go forth by the footsteps of the flock, and feed by the shepherd's tents. Be faithful in every means of grace. He will be found by those who diligently seek Him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Though your sins be ever so many, and ever so disgraceful, they will all be forgiven. He will have mercy upon you, and will abundantly pardon. For where sin has abounded, grace does much more abound.
He who has begun this good work in you will accomplish it to your eternal good and His eternal glory. Therefore, do not doubt and do not fear, for a broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. The deeper your sorrow is, the nearer your joy is. Your extremity is God's opportunity. It is usually darkest just before daybreak. You will soon find pardon, peace, and abundant redemption, and you will at last rejoice in the common and glorious salvation of His saints. Lastly, it is well for those who are still alive who neither desire to be in Christ nor to go to God. For it is well for you that you are not in hell. It is well that your day of grace is not utterly past. Behold, now is your accepted time. Behold, now is your day of salvation. Oh, that you would use the remainder of it in working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now is faith, saving faith, to be obtained. Now you may be washed from all sins in the Redeemer's blood. Now you may be justified, sanctified, and prepared for heaven. I plead with you to take the time while you still have time. You now have the means of grace to use, the ordinances of God to enjoy, His Word to read and hear, His ministers to instruct you, and His members to converse with. You don't know what a day may bring forth. You may die suddenly. As death leaves you, judgment will find you. If you would die as you are, out of Christ, lacking true faith, unsaved and unsanctified, then God will rain upon you fire and brimstone, storm and tempest, as your eternal, intolerable portion to drink. Allow me, therefore, one and all of you, to write as I do. God's glory and your everlasting salvation is all I aim at. What I look for in return from you is, I confess, much more than I deserve. Your prayers. It would be easy to provide many more examples than these, but I must stop. I make no apology, however, for the length of those I have already given. The listener will probably agree with me that they are in themselves full of interesting matter, but this is not all. They possess an additional value as supplying a most precious picture of Grimshaw's mode of expressing himself and of the topics on which his mind was constantly dwelling. In fact, they give us a pretty good idea of what the good man's preaching must have been like. He evidently wrote as he thought and spoke. His writings are just the overflowing of a heart full of Scripture, full of Christ, full of deep thoughts on the sinfulness of sin, the value of the soul, the need of repentance and faith, the happiness of holy living, and the importance of the world to come. Let anyone analyze Grimshaw's writings carefully and thoughtfully, and I think he or she will have a very good idea of the style in which Grimshaw used to preach. The stories and traditions that have been handed down about the good minister of Haworth are very many and very curious. All of them might not be true. Some might even be greatly exaggerated. Many, however, after making every fair consideration, are undoubtedly credible and genuine. I will mention some of them. The influence he gradually obtained in his own parish was very great. Even those who were not converted looked up to him and feared him. John Newton says, One Sunday, as a man was passing through Haworth on horseback, his horse lost a shoe. He asked the blacksmith to put it on. 
To his surprise, the man told him he could not shoe a horse on the Lord's day without the minister's permission. They went together to Mr. Grimshaw. The man satisfied Mr. Grimshaw that he was really in a hurry and was going for a doctor, so Mr. Grimshaw permitted the blacksmith to shoe the horse, which otherwise he would not have done for double pay. John Newton told more. It was his frequent custom to leave the church at Haworth while the psalm before the sermon was being sung to see if any were absent from worship and idling their time in the churchyard, the street, or the alehouses, and many of those whom he so found he would drive into church before him. A friend of mine, passing a public house in Haworth on a Lord's Day morning, saw several people making their escape out of it, some jumping out of the lower windows and some over a low wall. He was at first alarmed, fearing that the house was on fire, but upon inquiring about the cause of the commotion, he was only told that they saw the parson coming. They were more afraid of the parson than of a policeman. His reproof was so authoritative and yet so mild and friendly that the strongest sinner could not stand before him. He also tried to put an end to the common custom of walking in the fields on the Lord's Day in summer instead of coming to God's house. He not only bore his testimony against it from the pulpit, but he went into the fields in person to find and reprove the delinquents. There was a spot at some distance from the village where many young people used to assemble on Sundays despite all his warnings. At last he disguised himself one evening so that he would not be known until he was near enough to find out who they were. He then took off his disguise and told them not to move. He wrote down all their names with his pencil, and he ordered them to come see him on a specific day and hour that he appointed. They all went to see him as punctually as if they had been served with a warrant. When they came, he led them into a private room, formed them into a circle, and commanded them to kneel down. Then he kneeled down in the midst of them and prayed for them with much earnestness for a considerable amount of time. After rising from his knees, he gave them a loving and moving lecture. He never had the need to repeat this friendly discipline. He completely broke the objectionable custom. One of the most remarkable and well-authenticated stories about Grimshaw is in connection with the Haworth races. These races were an annual festival sponsored by the innkeepers and were a great occasion of drunkenness, riot, extravagancy, and chaos. For some time Grimshaw attempted in vain to stop these races. John Newton explains what happened. At last, unable to prevail with men, he addressed himself to God. For some time before the races, he made it a subject of fervent prayer that the Lord would be pleased to interfere and to stop these evil proceedings in his own way. When the time for the races came, the people assembled as usual, but they were soon dispersed. Before the races could begin, dark clouds covered the sky, and such excessively heavy rain fell that the people could not remain there. It continued to rain steadily during the three days appointed for the races. This event was much spoken of at Haworth. It became a sort of proverbial saying among the people that old Grimshaw put a stop to the races by his prayers, and it proved to be an effectual stop. There were no more races at Haworth. John Newton tells yet another story about Grimshaw. He was especially watchful over those of his flock who made an open profession of Christianity to see if they adorned the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things and maintained a consistent Christ-like character. He was very severe in his rebukes if he found any of his communicants guilty of wrong practices. 
When he suspected hypocrisy, he sometimes took such strange methods to detect it as perhaps few men but himself would have thought of. He had a suspicion of the insincerity of some of his hearers who made a great show of their religion. In order to find out one of them, he disguised himself as a poor man, and went to him to ask for some help and a place to stay for the night. This person, who wanted to be thought very good and charitable, treated him with some abuse. Grimshaw then went to another house, to a woman who was almost blind. He touched her gently with his stick, and continued doing it until she, supposing it was done by some children in the neighborhood, began not only to threaten them, but to swear at them. Thus he was confirmed in his doubts. Listen to a story from Hardy's biography of William Grimshaw. At a cottage prayer meeting, some of Grimshaw's people had to endure much annoyance and persecution, and for a long time no one could figure out who the delinquents were. At last Grimshaw came to their assistance and solved the mystery. He put on an old woman's cap and then hid behind the door and watched. Then he appeared to grow rather bolder while he quietly made the observation he had wanted to make. He found that there was a set of rude boys who only came to mock and annoy others. They soon began to make fun of the old woman, as she seemed to be, and ridiculed and troubled her. In this way they were all found out and brought to justice, and then the persecution ceased. William Grimshaw carried his humility and simplicity of living to such an extent that he thought that anything was good enough for himself if he could only show a Christian brother kindness and hospitality. A godly friend who once came to stay a night with him was horrified on looking out of his bedroom window in the morning to see Grimshaw with his own hands cleaning his guest's boots. Nor was this all. On coming downstairs he discovered that Grimshaw had actually given up his own bedroom for his accommodation, and had spent the night in a hayloft. His ways in his own parish, as he went about doing the work of a pastor, were very distinct. Hardy says, When he met with anyone in the streets or pathways, he would enter into familiar conversation with them. He would generally ask if they were used to praying. When they answered in the affirmative, and he doubted their sincerity, he asked them to kneel down and show him how they performed this duty. As a result, there were sometimes scenes by the roadside that a stranger could not look at without a smile. But to the people involved, these inquiries were, in some instances, the means of awakening concern about their souls. The tradition of the district is that he would have them get down off their horses and have them pray. However, he was just as ready to do an act of kindness as to administer reproof. Once, on his way to Colne, he overtook an old woman and asked her where she was going. She replied, To hear Grimshaw. He had compassion for her many infirmities, but she said her heart was already there and she would make the body follow. Struck by her determination, he actually took her up behind him on a cushion on his own horse and thus enabled her to reach the place without further toil. R. Spence Hardy adds, Grimshaw was not careless about himself while watchful over the souls of others. Once he had a very fine cow, in which he took so much pride that the thought of her followed him into the service of the church and hindered his communion with God. He determined that she should no longer disturb his mind, and so he announced that his cow was for sale. When a farmer came to look at her, he asked, as usual, whether she had any faults, 
To this, Grimshaw made this quaint reply. Her fault in my eyes will be no fault to you. She follows me into my pulpit. The things that Grimshaw did inside his church, both in the lectern and the pulpit, may certainly seem to us very eccentric and strange in the present day. Undoubtedly they are not examples for imitation, and unless a man is a Grimshaw, he has no right to attempt them. Before condemning them too strongly, however, we should consider the times in which he lived, and the population among which he lived. We are in fact dealing with a man who lived in the seventeen hundreds. He was very exacting in enforcing order and devout behavior among the worshippers in his church at Haworth. Carelessness and inattention were instantly observed and openly rebuked. He would not continue with the service until he saw every person present in the attitude of devotion. Some of his hearers certainly deserved great attention and encouragement. More than a few traveled ten or twelve miles every Sunday to attend his ministry. One man, John Madden of Backup, often walked to Haworth on the Lord's Day and returned the same evening, a total distance of nearly forty miles. In giving out the hymns to be sung in church, Grimshaw sometimes took special liberties. A valued friend of mine was told by an old man in Haworth that he remembered his grandfather speaking of Grimshaw and telling the following story. His grandfather was in Haworth Church when Grimshaw gave out the well-known hymn of Dr. Watts, Come, you that love the Lord, and let your joys be known, join in a song with sweet accord, and so surround the throne. He said that when Grimshaw had read the first verse, he looked at the people and cried out, Now, unconverted sinners here present, can you sing that? His sermons were seldom short when he occupied his own pulpit at Haworth. Indeed, he sometimes preached for two hours. For this he once made an apology to John Newton. If I were in some places, I might not think it necessary to speak so much. But many of my hearers, who are wicked and careless, are likewise very ignorant and slow to understand. If they do not understand me, I cannot hope to do them good. And when I think of the uncertainty of life, that it could be the last opportunity, and that it is possible that I might never see them again until the great day, I don't know how to be specific enough. I tried to set the subject in a variety of lights. I expressed the same thoughts in different words, and can hardly tell how to stop, lest I should have left something out that might result in my preaching and their hearing being in vain. His prayers after the sermon must have been sometimes very remarkable. In 1803, John Pawson, a well-known Methodist preacher, said that he heard him fifty years earlier preach a most comforting discourse on the words, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no lack to those who fear him, Psalm 34, 9, in which he spoke very strongly about God's faithfulness to his promises. Grimshaw said, Before the Lord will allow his promise to fail, he must lay aside his divinity and ungod himself. He then offered the following prayer Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. Take all these poor people under your care and bring them in safety to their own houses, and give them their supper when they get home. But let them not eat a morsel until they have thanked you for it. Then let them eat and be satisfied, and return thanks to you when they have done. 
Then let them kneel down and say their prayers before they go to bed. Let them do this for once at any rate, and then you will preserve them until the morning. Although Grimshaw's ministry was almost entirely among the poor and lower middle classes, he was quite able to take his position and speak wisely and skillfully in any company. On one occasion he was invited to meet a nobleman who had accepted principles of atheism and had resisted the efforts of two eminent clergymen to convince him of his error. He wanted to quickly draw Grimshaw into a discussion, but Grimshaw firmly and decidedly declined. My lord, he said, I don't refuse to argue because I have nothing to say or because I fear for my cause. I refuse because argument will do you no good. If you really needed any information, I would gladly assist you. But the fault is not in your head, but in your heart, which can only be reached by divine power. I will pray for you, but I will not dispute with you. The nobleman afterwards said that he was more impressed by the honesty and firmness of those simple words than by all the arguments he had ever heard. R. Spence Hardy records, To a lady with whom Grimshaw was conversing, he once gave a powerful reproof. She was expressing her admiration of a certain minister who had more talents than grace. Madam, said Grimshaw, I am glad you never saw the devil. He has greater talents than all the ministers in the world. I fear that if you saw him, you would fall in love with him, since you have such a high regard for talents without holiness. Please do not be led away with the sound of talents. Stories like these tell a tale that should not be overlooked. The subject of them must certainly not have been an ordinary man. When sayings and actions are so carefully treasured up and handed down from generation to generation, the person about whom they are told was of no common mould. I repeat the opinion that I expressed at the beginning of this biography. There were not three greater spiritual heroes in England in the eighteenth century than William Grimshaw. I will now conclude this chapter with three short excerpts from men of approved characters in the eighteenth century that will serve to show the high estimation in which Grimshaw was held by his contemporaries. William Romaine said publicly in a sermon preached at St. Dunstan's in the West, shortly after Grimshaw's death, and Mr. Grimshaw was one of the most diligent and hard-working ministers of Christ that I ever knew. For the good of souls he rejected all hopes of wealth and fortune. For the love of Christ he gladly accepted difficulties, dangers, and tribulations. He preached Christ and Christ alone, and God gave him very numerous seals to his ministry. William Grimshaw himself told me that not fewer than twelve hundred people were in communion with him, most of whom, in the judgment of charity, he could not but believe to be one with Christ. When some of his friends, concerned about his health, would ask him to slow down, he would answer, Let me labor now, I will have rest soon enough. I cannot do enough for Christ, who has done so much for me. Grimshaw was the most humble walker with God I ever met with, so much so that he could never bear to hear any commendations of his usefulness or anything that belonged to him. His last words were, Here goes an unprofitable servant. Henry Venn, who preached Grimshaw's funeral sermon, said, among other things, It's hard to determine whether we have more cause to lament his removal from our world, or to rejoice that God was pleased to enrich him with divine knowledge in such a large measure, 
to make him so long an eminent instrument in his hand of converting sinners, and to enable him to persevere with an unblemished character until he finished his course with joy. Few have ever expressed such great ardor of affection to the service of Christ as your late, much-loved pastor. Never was there any corrupt child of this world more consumed by the love of money and more diligently gathering it than your late pastor was in teaching and preaching the kingdom of God and the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. John Newton said, I knew Mr. Grimshaw and had frequent conversations with him for four or five years. I number it among the many great mercies of my life that I was favored with his notice, edified, I hope, by his instruction and example, and encouraged and directed by his advice at the critical time when my own mind was engaged with the desire of entering the ministry. I saw in him, much more clearly than I could have learned from books or lectures, what it was to be a faithful and excellent minister of the gospel. The remembrance of him has often both humbled and inspired me. These testimonies are significant and powerful, but they are not mere flattering words. They are well deserved, and they are true.